everybody. Good to uh, see all of you. Um, hang on, I'm working on my slide thing. Maybe. Ah, there it is. Good. Um, this is not product placement, but good news. There's coffee today. I'm so excited that we have brought, uh, hopefully, coffee back now um, on a regular basis. So that's good news. Um, it's a, a sign that we're returning to some type of normality. I don't know what that is, but, um, you know, it's the little things, right? So an interesting thing this morning I want to share with you. <coughs> um, uh, most, well, almost every Sunday is I, I usually stop and I pick up some coffee and um, I, I usually just try to spend a couple minutes just in prayer and, and in my journal a little bit on Sunday mornings, um, thinking about the day and, and whatnot. <coughs> and um, my prayer every Sunday has been that we would collectively be in the presence of God. Um, and there's different ways to say it, you know, chasing after the presence. I, I just want people to experience God. That, that's all I want. And, and I started my journal, and I said, Lord, this is what I want today. I want people to have this undeniable sense that you're, you're in the house. I, I mean, that's what I want more than anything else. And this word flashed across my brain. And, uh, you know, the longer I do this, the more I'm beginning to see how God communicates with me. And very often, it's just a single word that passes across my brain. And uh, it has a certain look to it. I can't describe it. I just know when it happens. And... You know, he may speak to you differently, and that's cool, but for me, it's usually a single word. <laughs> and so, because um, I think he knows that's all I can handle, right? You know, kind of a thing. And that word <clears throat> was expectant. And I thought to myself, um, well, that's interesting. And uh, it kind of embedded in that word was this real subtle challenge. It's like, yeah, this is what you want, but do you expect it? Well, now, now you're just meddling, Lord. I mean, come on, you know, i got to actually respond to this a little bit. But I think that it's not just for me. I think it's just for us as a church. What are you expecting when you walk into this place? Are you expecting that you're going to meet with the Lord and the Lord is going to speak to you? Um, because if not, you might want to try to have that expectation when you walk in here. And, and the same thing is true just in your own your own moments, like maybe if you set your alarm, like we've been doing, right? Or maybe if you're um, praying with your spouse, or with you, are you expecting the Lord to show up? Because <coughs> he's already there, <laughs> right? But really, the issue here is, you know, what are you expecting? And, and it's so interesting to me, <coughs> Susan mentioned it um, in her prayer, and then we also, you know, prayed uh, ahead of time, we do it every Sunday, is that Jesus said very clearly, if there are two of you, just two, and you're meeting in my name, I'm there with you. That's a promise that you can count on. And it's not that we're, um, the, the way I like to say it is, is we're going to hold God to that. Not that we have any demands on God, but rather he made the promise, you can, you can count on it, right? And so my challenge, I think, for all of us today is expect God to be here and to speak to you in some way, okay? So, There. I, I did what the Lord asked me to do, now I can preach, <laughs> right? 
Anyway, I'm so glad that you're all here today and that you can enjoy coffee and um, sunny weather but cold and, and we're all here. And Anyway, so I'm just thrilled that we're here. So um, those of you who are gathered online, I wish that you could you know, be able to join us, but hopefully you've got some coffee and you're sitting in your lazy boy and you're watching. And when you get a chance, come on down. Love to see you. It'd be great. Um, I got to tell you a really funny story. <coughs> so years ago, I was pastoring a church up in Wisconsin and I had two uh, young ladies, I think they were kind of late 20s, um, that attended my church. And um, after probably four or five months, they came to church and they were both grinning like little girls. Now I have little girls, I've had little girls in my house, and so I know what that look looks like, right? And they were grinning and they were like, Pastor, can we show, a, can we show you our new Bibles? Oh my gosh, I'm like choked up, like, well, yeah, you can show me your new Bibles. So anyway, so they, had, they, they realized that they didn't have Bibles. And so they went to the store, and uh, they, they, they not only got brand new Bibles, but they got the little tabs with the books of the Bible so that um, when, when the preacher was bouncing around, they could find the chapters, you know, a little, uh, the books and chapters a little bit quicker. And, and um, the joy that they had and were willing to share with me was one of those, you just kind of sit back and go, yeah, this is why I do this. This is, I just love that, that part. And from time to time, I get asked about Bibles and translations, and I wanted to, to do a series um, kind of early this year on the Bible, on the book. Now, that's what we're calling this particular series. And I, a couple things I want to cover. I want to I I talk about the actual book itself, um, but also just so that people have kind of an understanding of how I approach the text. Um, that might help you, and maybe you'll think about how you approach the text, too, and I think we all need to, to think about that a little bit. Um, and I thought that a great place to start was this idea of translations and the types of translations that are out there. And, and here's the thing. I want you to hear this before I get rolling. Whatever translation you have is fine, okay? I am not going to argue for a specific one. Um, I may poke fun at some, of the, some other translations, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. I just want you to read the Bible, right? So whatever version you have and whatever speaks to you is, is important because the real question, the one that I'm asking, are you reading it? That's, that's the central component, not which version, but the fact that you're actually reading it. And, um, and I, th I thought I'd, I would start with a, a graphic, um, because I don't know about you, I like visual. Visual helps me understand things. And, and when I put this graphic up, I want you to understand, this is my take on translations. Now, there may be some other ones out there. I'm, I'm just going to try to put a, a visual together so that you can see where different versions, different translations of the Bible fit on a spectrum, just so that you can understand it, okay? Um, this kind of stuff is, is really helpful. Um, and I've only chosen some of the more common translations, versions of the Bible, so it's not exhaustive. Trust me, there are a lot of versions of Bibles, okay? There's, there's tons of them. Um, some of them are better than others, and I'm just choosing the most common ones. So if you walk into Mardell's or if you walk into your local Christian bookstore, you're going to find these versions. These are the ones that are um, out there. And so I want you to see this. So here, let me put this, this up for you. Hopefully you can see this okay. All right. So <clears throat> on the spectrum, on the left-hand side, 
we're talking about versions of the Bible that are readable. Um, what we sometimes call uh, transliterations. And on the right-hand side is accuracy, what we actually call translations, okay? So one of the things that every translator of the Bible has to wrestle with is the fact that there are words and phrases that don't have exact equivalents in different, different languages. Some of you who speak other languages know exactly what I'm talking about. Because somebody will say, and I'm not even just talking about slang or colloquialisms. I'm talking about there are just some words that don't translate. The great example of this, I, I think I read this somewhere, that among Inuit people in Alaska, there's something like 35 different words for snow. Different kinds of snow. So when we say snow, your Inuit person is like, well, what kind of snow? All right? I mean, trust me, if you've lived in a northern climate, it makes a difference. Because some of that stuff, you ought not drive in. Understand what I mean? So there are, there are words and phrases that appear, and, and this is the reason why I often will dig a little bit deeper in the language so that I have a better understanding of what that author is trying to communicate to us, right? I mean, this is, this is part of it. Um, so you've, you have this choice, are you going to make it readable or accurate? And that's kind of the trade-off. And there are cer certain versions of them, or of the Bible, that default to one side or the other. And, and that's okay, you just have to understand when you open that translation what you're getting, okay? So <clears throat> what, I, what I thought I'd do is just kind of plot some of these out. So the, probably the, the most common readable transliteration is, is, a, is a thing called the message. How many of you have heard of the, the message? Yeah, this one got real popular kind of in the early to mid-2000s. I mean, it was, it was, it was around uh, quite a bit. Um, I noticed that uh, some of the um, pastors of larger churches, they were using um, the message version in order to communicate certain things. Um, it's... It, it's readable, um, almost poetic. Uh, and, and kind of along with that is the New Living Translation, the NLT. Have you heard this one, NLT? Um, back in the 80s, they, they renamed it. They called it The Book, which I thought was really kind of interesting. Um, but it was a New Living Translation. Um, both those versions, Message and the New Living, are great if you're just reading devotionally because it communicates the essence of the words, even though it's not the most accurate, but you get a sense of what God is trying to communicate through his word there. And there is nothing wrong with that. And I think that um, if you're just, you know, trying to go to bed at night, and you just need to read God's word, New Living, Message, great books to do. Nothing wrong with that. I think those are important. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum is we have things that are, that are accurate. Now, this is kind of where I plotted them. Other people may disagree with that, but <clears throat> the, the one that I really like is the New American Standard Bible, NASB. And, and I'll tell you right now, very accurate, just not very readable. And so if you're doing serious study where you're really trying to understand something and you're not um, necessarily familiar with Greek and Hebrew, an NASB is a valuable resource. Just make sure it's not the only resource that you have in front of you, okay? You need to compare that to something else. And then back, um, 
probably 30 years ago or so, the Revised Standard and then the New Revised Standard, the NRSV, came on the scene. Again, highly accurate and a little more readable than the New American Standard. Um, I like the NRSV. Usually, if I'm doing any type of serious study, I've got both of those in front of me because it's just helpful to see how other scholars have translated certain words and to kind of compare and contrast. And nowadays, you can get both of those on most Bible apps. Most of them, okay? Now, um, kind of in the middle, you have the NIV, New International Version. Um, because it's, it's probably a little more on the readable side, but it is you know, fairly accurate. Now, some of you know, if you've been around me, um, I'll come across a word or a phrase and I'll just tell you that I don't like how it was translated and then I'll give you my own translation. And that, that happens from time to time. And that's okay. Um, you know, the people who actually put that book together have studied it a lot longer than I have. I just don't like it because it probably doesn't, doesn't uh, align with what I'm preaching that day. I don't know, <laughs> something along those lines. But I really like um, just how readable it is, but I also know that there's a degree of accuracy to it. I happen to use, just in my own study, an NIV um, from 1984. I got it from my cousin for my um, high school graduation. I still use it. It's my workhorse, and, and I love it. There have been revisions to that. Um, in fact, uh, we were in a, a study once, and um, uh, I think it was... Uh, um, my friend Tom, who said, hey, what version are you using? And he had a later version of the NIV. We were both reading the NIV, but it, it had changed over a period of time, and, and that's good. Um, in fact, uh, I, I've met some of the people that have translated the NIV. Pretty smart dudes, and ladies, both, and I, I really appreciate that. And so I know that there's revisions that are happening to that, but for me, I, I tend to like um, 1984, uh, 1984 edition, but I also noticed that when I'm copying and pasting for slides, that it's a newer version of the NIV, and so sometimes I have to go, oh yeah, that's a different word, maybe I need to <clears throat> make note of that. So NIV, very readable and fairly accurate. So I kind of put that in the middle of the road. There's an intention on the part of the translators and the scholars here to, to balance this out a bit on the NIV. Now, more recently, back in, I think it was 2001 or 2005, I can't remember which, um, the English Standard Version came on the scene. <coughs> and this um, came out of uh, Lifeway, um, the publisher, who was looking for an updated version of the new revised standard. They wanted to make it a little more readable. And so the English Standard Version kind of leans towards accuracy, but it is also a very readable Bible. And I would say that if you are just looking for you know, to have a Bible, you know, on your, uh, on your um, nightstand or something that you want to reference or bring to church, an NIV or an English Standard Version are, would be two excellent places to begin, okay? Now, I'm not saying you need to go out and buy those. If you've got something else, hey, that's cool too, as long as you're reading it. That's the only thing, is that if you're finding a version and it's not readable and you're not reading it, then, you know, that's not helpful. So an NIV and an English Standard Version is a great place to start. Now, I also know that <coughs> some traditions, some churches get, uh, they get a little fired up about versions of the Bible. And again, I still think that the point is, are you reading it, right? That's, that's the real issue for me. And so one of the questions that we have to wrestle with is, what do we do with the King James Version, the KJV, or 
the NKJV, the New King James Version Bible. Now again, there are some people who like that. There's a flowery language to it, and they may have grown up with it, and it's a bit nostalgic to them, and again, that's fine. I don't have a problem. There are, however, some traditions that have literally put a stake in the ground and said, this is it and no more. I, 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 I saw a, a sign to a church, this was when we lived in Lexington, Kentucky, and it was, for a, it was a primitive Baptist church, that's a thing, there's a kind of a denomination called primitive Baptist, and on the sign, I mean, in bold letters, dispensational KJV only. And I thought to myself, well, that's good. Thank you for putting on that sign. I know that I don't belong there. If you do, that's cool. But for me, that was, that was not where I was going to belong. And they were, they were right up front about it. And then I saw this one online. Independent, old-timey, hellfire, brimstone, King James preaching. <laughs> yeah, wow, was right. Yeah, right? Hey, at least you know what you get. There's no, there's no marketing here. This is just... Here's who we are, you know, kind of a thing. And I noticed that the, at least the, the building in the background um, might be a house. So it might have been a house church at one point. I don't know. I have no idea. I just found this online. I had to laugh because I'm like, okay, you know, God bless you for, for being that way. I, you, let me know how that works out for you. But okay. But the King James um, Bible tends to be this one that <clears throat> gets a lot of people excited and I, I need to talk about this a little bit. And I was trying to decide if I was going to do this here or if I was going to do this elsewhere. I think this is a good, a good place to talk about it. So <clears throat> one of the things I get concerned about is what I called interpretive distance. Now, I know it sounds a bit fancy, but hold on. This will make sense to you here in a moment. So the original manuscripts of, of both the Old and New Testament are Hebrew and Greek. Okay? Old Testament is Hebrew. Um, in the New Testament is Greek, maybe a little bit of Aramaic. Uh, you might find some references to some other ancient languages in the Old Testament, but for the most part, you have Hebrew and you have Greek, okay? And somebody is translating from the Greek and the Hebrew into the different language, in this case, English. That's one step, okay? I have to look at those words and make a decision about how to translate them. Does this make sense, right? That's one step I have to do. Okay. In a King James Version Bible, you've, you've got some things that are going on here. First and foremost, you have Greek and Hebrew, and then there was a man, his name is St. Jerome, and he translated the Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And that book is called the Vulgate. And for centuries, that was the standard now, you can't tell me that St. Jerome didn't make certain translational decisions, okay? So he made one step of decisions. He went from Greek and Hebrew to Latin, and the Catholic Church preached in Latin. In fact, that's why we have Vatican II back in the, in the early 60s, was to allow Mass to be said not in Latin, but also in English, okay? So you've, you've got some things that are going on with that interpretive step, Greek and Hebrew to Latin. Are you tracking with me? Then you had some uh, King James-era scholars who translated the Vulgate into King James English. Right? So we went a second step, an interpretive step. So they made some decisions based on the Latin and how we were going to translate into King James English. 
Now here's the other thing, and I don't think we necessarily think about this so much, but when you go and read the King James English, guess what? You're making interpretive decisions on putting it into modern English because we don't talk like King James English with these and those and hithers and thithers and all that kind of stuff anymore, right? So now we have three interpretive steps from the original Greek and Hebrew. Well, again, if you're reading your Bible and you find a great deal of hope and the Holy Spirit speaks to you as you're reading whatever words you're reading, I'm great with that. But please understand that there are three steps in the interpretive process, and if that's the, if that's the case, then um, you've got to trust the Holy Spirit even more, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to argue here. I'm just saying there's some things that are going on in the background. And you can find a translation in modern English that you don't have to try to say, What's, what, what does that mean? You don't, you don't have to do that because somebody else has already done that from the original language rather than the interpretive steps. Is this making sense? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Okay, good, good. This is important. Now, I can't speak to um, translations into other languages uh, just because I don't know. I don't have any knowledge of that. I know people who do, but I just, I just don't. Um, I'm just talking from an English standpoint. So if you find comfort in the King James Version, God bless you. I'm, I'm great with that. I just want you to understand it's probably not a hill worth dying on, okay? And I know there's some people who, um, that's, you know, King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Hold up. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that a little bit. All right. Anyway, enough about King James Version. I think that's important. Um, may pick that up a little bit more in the future, but I, I, I just want you to know, I want you to read it. That's the issue. So whatever version is fine with me. Um, and that's really the advice here. Whatever you have and you pick up and read and it speaks to you and God speaks to you through it, that's awesome. If you're gonna do serious study, try to have at least two versions, one that's readable and one that's more academic, okay? If you're gonna do some serious study. Those of you who are involved in Bible Study Fellowship or one of the other ones out there, I just highly recommend to have two versions and you can read it side by side. Um, <clears throat> and the other, the other piece of advice that I have with all of this is don't be afraid to ask. There are some incredible resources online, but please understand that you know, your average seminary-trained pastor actually has a little bit of knowledge and at least can point you towards some resources. Okay, We're happy to do that. Uh, those are fun conversations to have, actually. So by all means, if, you're, if you don't know, if you don't understand something, don't be afraid to ask. Um, and I actually um, like it. I, I got a text from uh, Randy Beecham the other day, and he noticed something in one of his Bible readings, and he asked me about it, and I had no idea. And I'm like, darn you, Randy, now I gotta go look that up. <laughs> Thanks, man, appreciate that. <laughs> No, it's good. Uh, th those kinds of conversations are fun because th the whole point is that we're a body. And the body, different parts of the body are going to see different things in the text and that's what we need. And we all need to, to encourage each other to be reading and, and trying to listen to what God has to say and then we work on it together. Now, uh, as you can imagine, with all these versions, people get a little heated about, about versions in Bible. And, and one of those sticking points, I would, I would say, um, that has come up probably in the last 50 years, maybe a little bit more than that, well, at least the last 100 years, is, is this notion of inerrancy. 
Have you, have you heard this before? The Bible is inerrant. And I, we have to be a little bit careful with that word because there are, there are some different definitions out there. There is a, what I'm gonna call a folk definition. And what I mean by that, it's a definition that has um, more or less been adopted by congregations. You know, people who are, you know, going to church on Sunday and trying to follow Jesus and understand their Bible. And the folk understanding is that the Bible just doesn't have any errors in it at all. There's just no errors in it. And that if there's things in there that don't make sense, that if you studied it enough, you'd be able to make sense of it. Uh, that's kind of the folk understanding. Now, I'm slightly oversimplifying this a little bit, but I think you know the vast majority of people, if you ask them to define what inerrancy was, that's where they would go. There's no Bible. Uh, there's no errors within the Bible. Now, on the academic side of things, the definition is slightly different. And it's worth talking about. Because there are some troublesome passages within the Bible. Let me give you an example. Mark 16 is written by somebody else. I'm sorry, it doesn't look like the rest of Mark. So somebody else added it. We don't know necessarily when or how it was added. And, and so, I, you know, I, I don't know how you can read Mark 16 and go, okay, this was by the same pen. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. There are some other, you know, pieces of the puzzle here and there, um, especially within the Gospels and, and where, um, I, you know, the, the uh, Jesus mentions a high priest that wasn't the high priest at the time, and, and everyone's like, well, did Jesus make a mistake? Well, no, maybe the, maybe the person who wrote it down made a mistake, right? Anyway, so often scholars will say, okay, there are some passages within the text that are a little troublesome, and, um, you know, I call them errors, but, you know, there's some troublesome passages. And so the way they more or less have gotten around it is that they said the Bible is inerrant in the original manuscripts. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. <clears throat> so there are manuscripts of all of the books of both Old and New Testament. I'm going to pick on the New Testament just for a moment. There's lots of them. In fact, there are more copies of New Testament books of the Bible than there are copies of Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad. And isn't it interesting, we're not arguing about the Iliad and the Odyssey and how that got translated, right? Now, obviously, Homer's not making the same claims that you know, Jesus was making, so it's a little different of a story, but okay. But there are lots of these ancient manuscripts in, based on where they're, where they're dating. Here's the issue, though. We don't have the originals. So I understand that it's inerrant in its, original, in its original manuscript. I understand why they say that, but I'm not sure that it's particularly helpful because we don't have them. Does that make sense? I'm like, I'm, uh, that's just a piece of that puzzle. I'm like, I don't, for me, I'm, I get it, but I'm not sure that it, it, it helps me. We have what we have, warts and all. We do. And there's human error in the transmission of this thing. And that's okay because I don't think any of that stuff undermines the Bible's truth. Do you understand? Even though there are some things that are troublesome, the truth of the Bible maintains uh, over long periods of time, uh, probably 1,700 years or more. The Bible is, in my view, infallible. 
I wouldn't say it's inerrant, but it is infallible. And that simply means that it contains everything that we need to live a faithful life. You can go to the text and not everything has to be perfectly accurate for you to understand how God wants you to behave in the world today. If you want to behave properly and to follow and walk in front of the face of God in his presence, you can do that based on what's in the text. And so there's this kind of the idea in my mind is there's propositional truth. There's logic, like um, modus modus tollens and modus ponens and and some of you who have studied logic, you know what I'm talking about. But there's, you know, proposition A, proposition B, then conclusion C, or whatever it happens to be. Yes, I think the Bible stands up to logic, but I don't think logic is the only basis of truth. There is a relational truth that is contained in the Bible on how to behave properly with God and with your fellow human beings, and that's the point of it all. Does that make sense? So if you're interested in propositional truth, it's there, it's fine, but the point is, is I don't think that's the end-all, be-all of Christian experience and Christian witness. I think it has more to do with how we behave and how we act with God. It's true what we read in the Bible, and we can begin to understand as God begins to reveal himself to us through it. Tracking with me? Okay. Now, over time, the Bible, in my view, has become venerated to the point of absurdity. Oh, now we're starting to get somewhere. But we've taken this book and we've venerated it to the point where it's like, wait a second, what are we doing here? And this reminds me of an Old Testament warning. And I want to read this to us as, as we go along here. I think this is really important. And I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 8. <clears throat> We're going to spend some time in there. Let me give you... Um, kind of the context of where we are. So in Judges chapter 8, we're talking about a man named Gideon. And yes, when you go to a hotel room, you find there's a Bible there, usually an NIV, by the way, um, that's planted there by the Gideons, right? This group of people take their name from this judge. Now, Gideon um, is a well-known Sunday school Bible story, VBS type of thing. Most of us um, remember him in flannel graph, and it was awesome. And so what happened is that you have Israel, who is just getting settled into the promised land, and they're being raided by their neighbors, in this case the Midianites, their people in the south. And they're raiding the land of Israel, and God sends an angel to call Gideon to lead and ultimately rescue his people, because that's That's the business that God is in. He's in the business of rescue, by the way. And so Gideon has this conversation with the angel, and he's a little unsure that it's really him because he is the youngest son in a small family, least of his tribe, and one of the smallest tribes of all Israel. Okay? Which I'm like, dude, it's an angel. And yet he wisely puts out a fleece. Remember this? I'm going to put out a, a dry fleece. And if it's wet in the morning, then I'll know. Well, he's able to, like, you know, bring out a bunch of bowls of water. It's still not good enough. So let me get this straight. You had an angel, plus you got one sign, and he does it again. Okay, this time I'm going to make it wet, and if if I wake up and it's dry, then it's really from God. Okay, now those things are kind of wise. And how many of you have put out a fleece? You've done it. I know you have, right? Because you didn't have the benefit of an angel, right? (laughs) You know, I understand. 
But he's got an angel who, who told him, and he puts out the fleece, and I think that was probably pretty wise of him. But Gideon calls Israel, and Israel musters, and there are thousands of individuals, of men who are ready to, to fight. And for whatever reason, God takes that force of people and whittles it down to about 300. You know the story. And I never understood this. He gives them um, like, like vessels of clay and torches. There's no mention of swords. There's no mention of, you know, arms and armament. It's torches. And through God's power, these 300 individuals with their, with their pottery and their torches defeats all of Midian. It's a pretty cool story. But, in the words of Paul Harvey, do you know the rest of the story? Let me share it with you, because I think you might find this interesting. Here's uh, Judges 8, verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. You have saved us from Midian's tyranny. This makes um, some sense, um, but, but God had clearly not allowed for a king. Okay? But they said, why don't you rule over us? Look, you did this for us. Actually, this is quite common. When you have a, a conquering general, oftentimes they're made a leader. Happened to George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, <clears throat> Dwight D. Eisenhower, probably some others in there, but those are the three big ones that I can think of. Um, and you can probably look through history and, and see all of this. So Israel, very, you know, why don't, why don't you do it? You be the guy. So Gideon said, I most certainly will not rule over you, nor will my son. God will reign over you. Great answer, by the way. Then Gideon said, but I do have one request. This is interesting. Give me each of you an earring that you took as plunder. Ishmaelites, those are the, the people of Midian, wore gold earrings, and the men all had their pockets full of them. So they had routed the enemy with 300 and you got 300 people who are taking the plunder from a few thousand individuals and they're filling up their pockets, right? Earrings, gold earrings. So no thanks, says Gideon, but uh, hey, if you're going to offer something, how about you give me a portion of the plunder, okay? They said, of course, they're yours. Yeah, you're the guy. We appreciate you. They spread out a blanket, and each man threw his plundered earrings on it. The gold earrings that Gideon had asked for weighed about 43 pounds. Um, in other uh, translations, they say about 1,700 shekels. And so if you do the math, it's somewhere around the 45-pound mark because, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a few thousand years here, okay? Uh, measurements, you know, change over a period of time. But, I, you know, I don't know. Have you ever held a pound of gold? <laughs> yeah. Okay. 43 pounds, and that didn't include the crescents and pendants, the purple robes worn by the Midianite kings, and the ornaments hung around the necks of their camels. Okay, so he got some of that too, but just the earrings alone were about 43 pounds, okay? So here's the plunder. So what did he do with all that? Do you know? What did Gideon do with all that gold? Gideon made the gold into a sacred ephod and put it on display in his hometown, Ophrah. What's an ephod? Do you know? It's a little placard. It's a breastplate. About like that. Hung, hang, uh, hung around the neck and then tied in the back. So it was kind of like a backpack in the front, only made of gold. right? 
And it was what we would call, uh, in today's terms, a vestment. So typically, a religious individual would put the ephod on to perform some type of religious ceremony. Very typically, to inquire of God. I am literally putting this on, mentally preparing myself in order to go before the Lord and ask him a question. Does this make sense? That's an ephod. Can you imagine a 43-pound piece of metal on your chest? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I don't know if it was the whole thing or not. It doesn't matter. But he created this ephod, and they would often use it to inquire of God. And so he put it on his display in his hometown, which, you know, makes perfect sense. It's a testimony to him and what he did, uh, but more importantly, what God did. And look, if we want to know what God has to say, we can don the ephod and we can inquire of him. In fact, later on, uh, we know that King David actually had an ephod that he would go and inquire of the Lord, okay? So an ephod, common thing. <coughs> now, this is where it gets really, really interesting. Here's the second part of that verse. Put it on display. All Israel prostituted itself there. Gideon and his family too were seduced by it. Wait, what? So in the Old Testament, when you see about Israel prostituting itself, that's the euphemism for idolatry. In the Old Testament, idolatry and prostitution go hand in hand. It's very interesting. And here we have a big signal that the ephod, the very thing that's used to inquire of God, was then worshipped. God wasn't worshipped. The ephod was worshipped. Do you see that? This is what's happening here. They didn't worship God. They worshipped the ephod, and it became effectively an idol. This feels very familiar to me in many respects. The thing that we use to know God becomes the object of our worship. And I see that with how certain streams of Christianity treat the Bible. Now please understand, I have a high view of the Bible. But I get a little concerned when we're more interested in defending things of the Bible rather than using it to understand God and to walk with him. This quote really hits me. This is C.S. Lewis. He says, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. He's the word made flesh in John, right? The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him we must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia out of which texts can be taken for use as weapons. My commitment to you is I will never bludgeon you with the Bible because that's not what it's for. It is, a, it is a thing of hope and healing, not something to be weaponized. And I'm afraid that American evangelicals may have made the Bible into an idol. Oops, there, I said it. And I see this all over the place, and it concerns me a great deal. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, <clears throat> there he is, happy guy. 
he tells the story of how <clears throat> at one point in his life he came under the power of the Holy Spirit and he was in a church that didn't necessarily teach that. And so the pastor of that church said, well, you know what, John, you need to go and get sound doctrine. And so they sent him off to Bible school. And so he went to Bible, Bible school and, and he learned sound doctrine. And, and John made the comment that as he got sounder and sounder in his knowledge of God, in his doctrine, he got more and more desperate for God in his own life, personally. Whew, man. And fortunately, he had the courage to continue to follow the Holy Spirit and And that part of his life, and then he was able to marry it with sound doctrine because the guy had biblical chops. Man, did he ever. I find myself listening to him from time to time. There's recordings of him out there. And so he, he learned about God, but he lost knowing God personally. Look, here's the, here's the point of, of the thing today. This is what I want you to remember. I want you to read it. I want you to read your Bible more than anything else, but I want you to read it in light of this simple truth that that book is God speaking to you. It's not something that needs to necessarily be defended. I mean, from time to time it does, but mostly what God is doing is he's whispering and sometimes he's shouting at you through those words. I just want you to read it. I just want you to hear what he has to say to you directly. And, and this is why in, in our discipleship idea here at Thrive Church, uh, we listen for God. And, and so we're not, in, it's not that we don't do Bible study because there, there's value to that. But our discipleship isn't Bible study. And yet if you're doing it without the Bible, you're doing it wrong. We just have to place it in the right spot. It starts here and I learn through here. Because God speaks to us in a variety of different ways, one of which is through his word. And nothing that he will speak to you directly will contradict what's in the word. So you gotta know the word. Does that make sense? I have to understand this as far as the text goes. I want you to read it, but I also want you to listen to what God is saying to you. So here's what I want you to do this week. Because I can't not give you some kind of an assignment, right? But I think this is important um, if, this is, if you're up for it. I want you to take your favorite verse or your life verse if you have one of those. I have several. But <clears throat> I want you to take one of your favorite verses. I don't care which one it is. Write it down. I think you need to actually copy that bad boy down. I think that's important. So now don't just pick a short one because you got to write it down, okay? But I want you to pick a Bible verse, okay? And when you write that verse down, the thing that I want you to do is I want you to ask God, I want you to make an inquiry and just say something to the effect in your prayer, God, what do you want me to know from this verse? What do you want me to remember because of this verse? What is it about this verse that resonates within me? Ask God about that and then listen. Listen to what he says. My guess is one of a couple things will happen. Um, you may get some new insight, but don't be surprised if you remember the first time that verse became important to you. And then you say, 
God, is there a reason why this needs to come to my mind now? Because oftentimes when we're speaking with God, it's the first question and we get an answer and we get all excited and we go off and do our thing and God's still sitting at the table going, I'm not done. So you've got to ask a second and third question. Why are you revealing this to me now, Lord? Oh, that's a great second question. Or is there something else I need to know about this? Whatever it is, you decide. But spend some time with your favorite verse. There's a reason why it's your favorite verse. Remember, ask God about it, okay? God, thank you for your book. <laughs> thank you that uh, we can get to know you through the experience of ancient people. They have recorded the stories. They have recorded your, your acts, your work, the things that you've done, and we are so grateful for that because that means we can learn from them and we can actually see um, how you uh, interacted with them and then we can expect you to interact with us too. And I pray, Lord, that as we go to the, the verse that's so important to us, whether it's a life verse or an important passage or something that just stuck with us, God, my prayer is that every person who calls Thrive Church home would look at that verse and expect you to speak to them through it because that's who you are. We don't make demands on you, but we do understand your character and that you're always speaking to us and there are reasons for things and we don't necessarily understand them, but we can always ask you. And so God, as we go into the next week and we begin to follow you and we begin to look at your word, oh God, make that, make that word alive to us. That something would jump out of the page and you, that we would know that you were speaking directly to us through this. And God, I pray that as we expect you to move and to act and to speak to us, that we would be more and more sensitive to those things that you're doing, to your activity. I want to be so sensitive that I just can't help but hear what you're saying. And I pray too that as a church body, we would hear you. That we would seek after you, not just in the word, but day-to-day -day living. Because that sounds like the kingdom of God and that's what I want to be a part of. So Lord, as we worship now, Holy Spirit, come, speak. Do as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.